0: On this edition of Alberta Dugout Stories, to podcast, he penned the biography of our province's most famous baseball wordsmith. Willie Steele joins us. Welcome to episode 153 of Alberta Dugout Stories, the podcast. I'm Joe McFarland. With the baseball season coming to a close here in Alberta, we thought we'd switch things up on this episode to bring on someone we've wanted to chat with for a while. Willie Steele is the author of Going the Distance, The Life and Works of W.P. Kinsella, released in 2019. It's the biography of the Alberta-born scribe, most famous for the novel Shoeless Joe. Kinsella was born and raised in the Edmonton area and also spent some time at the University of Calgary. Among his many travels, Steele has been a big supporter of us sharing our stories and even writing one of his own for us on his experience at the Field of Dreams game earlier this season. So we thought we'd check in with him, but also introduce you, our podcast listeners, to Willie and what he knew of Alberta's most famous baseball wordsmith. Willie, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back on. I appreciate it.
0: What initially inspired you to tell the story of W.P. Kinsella?
1: Oh, gosh. I never know where to start with that question. You know, I've been asked that several times, and I guess when I was 16 years old and went to the movies uh, by myself and saw everybody else was going to go see Indiana Jones, and I went to go see uh, Field of Dreams. And it, it kind of mapped out – I didn't know it then, but it mapped out the trajectory of my professional life uh, for sure. Um, I did my did my master's thesis on Kinsella's novel She was Joe, and – the, the movie Field of Dreams, looked at father-son relationships. When I was looking for uh, a dissertation topic as I finished my PhD, I looked at baseball and different types of identity in uh, in Kinsella's baseball novels. And at that point, I thought, okay, I've written everything I can on Kinsella. Um, I ended up getting that published as my first book with McFarland Press, uh, a member of the Local Nine. And Kinsella got a hold of it and, and emailed me. Hmm. And um, you know, for, if you know much about Kinsella, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of flattering things to say about academics or literary theorists. And I'm a professional academic whose degree is in literary theory. <laughs> so, um, when he emailed me, I thought, well, this is pretty cool. And you know, he had nice things to say. And then a couple of weeks later in uh, November of, I guess it was, uh, 2012, uh, he emailed me and said, Hey, um, you know, I'd like to have my biography written and, you know, I I'd like the work you've done. Would you be interested in doing it? And I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I said, you know, sure, how hard could it be? And then I spent the next six years learning how hard it could be. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, early on, it was a moment of inspiration to get the, you know, the academic work done. But then it was just a, a matter of convenience, really. I mean, Kinsella reached out to me and asked me, so... um you know, I figured, what's the worst thing that could happen? So I said yes.
0: And obviously, you get built and uh, you have to kind of work around free time and that kind of thing. When when he first reached out to you and you started thinking about it and then you give, give the ultimate yes, did you have an idea as to how you wanted to go about the research and the interviews and all of those pieces to it? Or did you kind of go into it with a bit of an open mind?
1: Well, I went into it. I, I asked uh, some friends of mine at uh, different baseball conferences, academic conferences I go to, and uh, a friend of mine, Lee Lowenfish, wrote the biography of Branch Rickey, who mm-hmm. was the general manager that signed uh, uh, Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers. And I asked Lee, I said, you know, I, I've agreed to do this biography, but I I've never written one. I don't know where to start. You know, do you have any advice? And Lee said something along the lines of, um, if you're going to write a biography, choose a topic uh, a character who's already dead a person who's already dead and then kill his family and i didn't think that was very helpful uh mm-hmm. because at the time kinsella and his family were all alive uh, but i understand it now because whenever you interview somebody uh you know kinsella would open up his his day planner and say well you need this number or you should call this person and then One interview led to two, led to four, led to eight, and they just kept expanding and expanding. And so um, I really went into it. I kept an open mind. Like I didn't want to say, you know, well, I don't need to talk to that person because I thought, well, that person might have something, you know, interesting to say. And so uh, I kept an open mind as far as that goes. But I eventually had to just stop researching because I could have kept going. You know, there's Mm -hmm. everybody has a Kinsella story. You know, you talk to a uh, somebody in Canada and they're wanting to talk about the, the Silas stories and you know somebody down here wants to talk about the baseball stories, somebody wants to talk about Field of Dreams um, and then Kinsella himself gave me access to everything and, and i you know, that's when I say everything, I mean he, he sent me home the first time I went up to his house, he sent me back with 40 years of his personal diaries, his day planners with notes and he he would mail me 500 pages of, of autobiographical notes he made back in the early 80s, and he gave me access to everything at the archives in uh, in Burnaby and in Ottawa. And um, he never said no to a, a question. And so there was, I was really, at multiple times throughout this process, I was overwhelmed just by the sheer volume of stuff. And so, you know, yeah, I I kept an open mind, but eventually I just had to, like I said, I had to stop the researching and start the writing, Um, you know, but it was an interesting process for sure. I I had no idea that one man could keep that much stuff throughout the years. (laughs) Did anything
0: about him personality wise take you by surprise? Because he was uh, a different kind of gent by the sounds of it, and yet he seems as though he was very open and transparent with you.
1: Yeah, I I the thing that really surprised me is um and, and he he would be the first to admit this. He could hold a grudge like nobody else. Um there were things in his in the files there at the at the Library Archives Canada um in Ottawa that as I'm reading, you know, he wrote these things about somebody or something, you know, some slight that was done against him or whatever back, you know, 35 years earlier. And when I talked with him, I'd say, well, you know, it seemed like you were pretty upset at the time. And he would still harbor a grudge, mm-hmm. you know, three and a half decades later. Um, but he, I also think because of that, that's part of what motivated him. You know, he kept a file full of rejection letters. And some of them were just pretty pretty rude, like pretty mean. I mean, I think anybody who's been in you know the business, you know, writing long enough mm-hmm. um, gets their share of rejections. But he saved them, and it really seemed to be – Uh, what fueled him in some cases. Um, And so that was a a little bit surprising. But on the flip side of that, there were some things where he just had these um, just really beautiful things to say about his daughters, uh, Shannon and Aaron. Uh, There were a couple of letters that that were in the files there that he had saved, um, copies of that he had written to them. And I didn't include them in the book because I thought they were were incredibly beautiful letters, very touching uh, from father to his daughter's. And uh, I felt like those were between them, you know, but it was two very different sides of the same guy. You know, one is like really just uh, bitter, vindictive, you know, Uh, mean-spirited really in some ways. But the flip side of that is he was also incredibly warm and and loving and You know, if you were on his good side, you knew it. But if you're on his bad side, you were going to know that, too.
0: Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about his upbringing. Obviously, this is Alberta Dugout Stories. He's very well known from being from this province, the Edmonton region, grew up in rural Alberta. He also did some work at the University of Calgary. He obviously has some pretty strong connections here.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, he lived the first ten years of his life uh, in Darwell, uh, which is like, sixty miles or so outside of, of Edmonton, or was when he was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and and his mom wanted him born in, you know, she wanted him born in civilization. So that was a deal she had made uh, with her husband. And uh, after ten years, um, as a ten-year-old kid, his mom had felt that she had educated him, homeschooled him about as much as she could uh he had gone to a little schoolhouse there for a while but then she wanted him to be in town near um uh, other kids and so in the uh i think it was about august of 45 uh, right at the end of world war 2 they moved into uh into edmonton and um you know those first 10 years of of being essentially the only kid on this farm um didn't have a lot of playmates around he developed a, a very strong imagination and and he told me multiple times uh that that he felt that was where he started to develop his um uh, chops as a fiction writer you know creating characters in his head and things like that and then when he moved into Edmonton um you know he he learned how to kind of navigate the world of, you know, uh, the rest of elementary school and then middle grades and high school, um, never, never felt like he fit in, but, uh, by all accounts, you know, he was, he was well liked. Um, you know, he knew he wanted to be a writer, but, uh, he had counselors and teachers who never really encouraged him. They said, well, that's more of a a hobby. And, and that was one of those grudges he's held for, for many years. The, uh, the guidance counselor at his high school told him he he wouldn't be able to make a living as a writer, but he could do it for fun and When Kinsella went back decades later to speak to that high school, he told those kids that there's a there's a special place in hell for that guidance counselor for <laughs> telling a kid you know and so he he didn't hold back and this was gosh, this was probably fifty years or more uh later. And, um, you know, but he, as you said, he did have uh you know strong connections there his his time at uh at University of Calgary was not his favorite time mm-hmm. um you know he he loathed teaching uh he felt like it was too much administrative garbage and and not enough you know actual teaching he felt that a lot of the students shouldn't be allowed anywhere near a a university campus, and so um he not so lovingly referred to University of Calgary as a desolate u. Um, and, um, you know, as soon as he could get out of there after, after he had made the money and gotten the reputation with Shoeless Joe, um, he got out of there and, and never looked back.
0: Where did the fascination with baseball come for him?
1: You know, the beginning of, of Shoeless Joe, uh, where he talks about his father, you know, my father saw him play and years later, and you know, talking about Shoeless Joe, those were stories that his dad, uh, uh, John Kinsella told him as a, as a kid, you know, his his dad was American mm-hmm. um, and was in the Army, and after the war, kind of bounced around, uh, played some semi-pro ball, um, claimed to have seen the, the Chicago White Sox, you know, that year, 1919. And, um, so he told him those stories, and that kind of planted the seed. Um, Kinsella was a casual baseball fan, but once uh, Shoeless Joe took off in uh, in 82, um he really you know he he was asked to do a lot of baseball events mm. you know writing articles for TV guide and attending you know world series games you know when the blue jays won in the 90s back to back uh he was there you know writing things for the blue jays and um you know so he became a a much more passionate baseball fan the older he got um but he realized that you know there was a market for fiction that has baseball in it and so he he said, once I realized that, it was like a gold miner who taps into a vein of gold. You just keep mining it until every last nugget is out of there. So he spent the next several years writing uh, writing baseball fiction.
0: That part always fascinated me because, and granted, Alberta has a fairly rich baseball history, but at the same time... No. Um, it's still, you know, third on the line of sports, realistically, when you look at hockey and football probably being the preeminent sports. Even back then, when he was growing up, they would have been those sports that were front and center, and baseball was probably third. And so it always kind of made me wonder what it was about the game that sort of drew him to it.
1: Yeah, you know, he when he was little, um, he would follow as much as he could, you know, hearing uh, uh, games on the radio and, you know, Cardinals games in the World Series in the 40s. Um, he would listen to those, and he would follow teams. Um, you know, he said he was always um, drawn to the exotic nature of some of these cities, like you know Ogden, Utah, or Salt Lake City. You know, these far off places uh, to a kid in in Western Canada, and um, you know he kind of followed along that way. And then when he moved, when the when the family Kinsella family moved to Edmonton, he would attend. Um, gosh, I can't remember off the top of my head the name of the league that was back there in the forties. But you know they would go and do um, you know specials where he could you know get in for a nickel or a dime or whatever and, and watch a game and he would um, he would go catch some games there. But uh, you know like I said he wasn't a really uh, a rabid fan or a passionate fan until until years later. Uh, and then he attended games. You know he and his wife Anne at the time were uh, season ticket holders for the Mariners and would uh, would go down to Seattle uh, quite often. And um, you know, of course, he followed you know Toronto when they were you know when they were doing well, and um, and and he's passed that on. You know, both of his daughters follow baseball now too. So mm-hmm. this is you know kind of started with John Kinsella back over a hundred years ago, and and continues today with his kids.
0: Did he have a favorite piece that he had written, or was he always sort of in the mindset of uh, I'm only as good as the next story I write?
1: Yeah, there were some that he liked. You know, I think he had a, a particular fondness for uh, "Shoeless Joe Jackson Comes to Iowa," mm-hmm. uh, which was the the short story that he wrote. Really, as a tribute to the people and the landscape of of Iowa. You know, he went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and when he left there to go take the teaching job in in Calgary, he um, he wrote that story and thought, well, that's kind of a one on, one and done. And then a uh, editor's assistant. Uh, in Boston read it and encouraged him to turn it into a novel which of course became Shoeless Joe and so I think just simply because of, of what that did for his career there was always a, a fondness there um, there's another short story he he really liked and was proud of uh, called the night that Manny Mota tied the record mm-hmm. and um, you know it was when it was based on a game just a few days after Thurman Munson died the Yankees catcher died in a plane crash in 1979 and um uh, you know he wrote uh he wrote that story not long after after that game took place and so um there were stories like that that he always kept coming back to and said you know I think I really was able to to do something with that one that that has some staying power and and you know I really like you know this one for whatever reason um uh, but yeah I mean he he said you know you're you're only as good as, you know, you're as good as your last story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he, I think the most interesting thing he told me about writing was that he wished that he had written Shoeless Joe later in his career. Mm-hmm. And I asked him why, and he said, well, the, the problem was is that everything after Shoeless Joe was compared to Shoeless Joe. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the people who really love that novel, nothing else was ever going to measure up. And he said, you know, I thought that in some ways the Iowa baseball confederacy his his second novel uh, came out in '86. He said, you know, in some ways it's it's a better novel, um, but but it doesn't get the credit because it's not Shoeless Joe, you know. Right. Uh, and I think I think there's a point to that. I think that a lot of critics have kind of dismissed some of his other. Novels, in particular, because you know the staying power that shoeless Joe has as a result of field of dreams mm-hmm.
0: and speaking of field of dreams, uh, how did he take the movie? Was he on board from the get go, or was that something that you kind of hold a bit of a grudge towards?
1: No, he loved it. He said um, he was never one to collaborate with other people, and so um he, when they reached out, Phil Robinson got the rights and was going to make a script, you know, write the script, and he reached out to Kinsella. And Kinsella just – it was like a three-page, single-spaced letter that Phil wrote. And he's, you know, I'm going to have to make some changes. I'm going to have to do this, do that. And Bill was in uh, Hawaii. He used to spend his winters in Hawaii. And he wrote Robinson a postcard and said, uh, Dear Phil, do what you have to do. Love, Bill. And – um he would get – Robinson would send updates to Kinsella just to kind of keep him posted. And when he sent him the uh, first draft of the script in 87, when Bill read it, when Kinsella read it, um, he he teared up. Mm-hmm. Um, he he was blown away by what Phil had done with the script. And then when the movie came out, uh, they went to a premiere up in Canada, and um, uh, he teared up again. He said, I, I can't believe this is my – these are my own words making me do this, you know, making me cry. And uh he, he was very he was always very complimentary of Phil Robinson for the work he did and and I think this is the highest praise coming from Bill Kinsella was um he said, I, I couldn't have done a better job myself hmm. with it. And so he um he didn't have a whole lot of good things to say about the business side of the movie, you know, hmm. movie making, but he always he was always very complimentary of the work that Phil did on that film.
0: Interesting. Uh, 1997, quite the year for him. Gets into a car crash, uh, almost ends his yeah. writing career. How life changing was that for him? Not just in the in the the macro and and just that, but even in the micro, the day to day operations in which he worked.
1: Yeah. So you know, he was always a very disciplined writer. He was somebody who would write for two days and do a, a quota of a minimum of four pages each day for two days. And then on the third day, he would type what he had written or do editing the, the equivalent of four pages. And so he was always working on something, and he always had multiple stories in play at one time. So if he's, you know, hit writer's block on this story, he would shift gears and, and pick up this novel and work on it. When that wreck happened, you know, he and his his um, fourth wife Barb were out for a walk, and a van backed out and hit Bill, and he hit his head on the on the sidewalk and um there were all sorts you know had some teeth knocked loose and had some you know, some headache issues concussions things like that but uh and lost his senses of taste and smell but for him the most troubling part was that he uh lost his ability to write creatively and so he would still do book reviews or do an op-ed piece for the paper but it was more than a decade before he started writing Creatively again, and so the things that were published after '97 up until Butterfly Winter came out in 2011, um, the things that were being published were things that had already been written before the accident. Right. Uh, he he couldn't. He went from being a very type A, you know, disciplined uh, person with with regimented writing habits to being somebody who really just kind of you know very uh, you know whatever happens happens type thing and not not disciplined at all. Um, years later when, you know, he wrote Butterfly Winter and got it published, um, his wife, uh, fourth wife, Barb, uh, was dealing with some significant health issues, and um, while she was in the hospital, he would, he would pick up his pen and start writing again, and so that really got him back into the habit of writing, but um, professionally, that was devastating, and I think, looking back on it, um, that was the beginning of some of his significant health issues. He had always, you know, battled diabetes and had some You know, ulcers and things like that. But that that wreck in 97, I think, really caused some some health problems that never entirely went away uh, until he died.
0: One of the things that happens at certain points during your career in, in whether it's broadcasting or writing or that is that you get a little reminiscent you think back on the days and look back at some of the things that you've accomplished in those later years. I assume he maybe did the same thing. He was uh, acclaimed. He had the awards and that kind of thing. What did he think about those kinds of recognitions that he was receiving for the things that he had written, even if it was 25 or 30 or 40 years prior?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I agree with you that I think most of us do tend to get sentimental and kind of, you know, you reflect back on some of your earlier things in the career. And say you know, what I'm really proud of that. Um, Kinsella was proud of the fact that he was able to prove those people who said he couldn't be a writer uh, wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt a sense of accomplishment there. Uh, he always wanted to make a living as a writer. And so, you know, he was um, you know commercially successful. Um, I asked him just a week or so uh, before he died, uh, one of our last email exchanges uh, while he was in the hospital there at uh, uh, Hope, uh, B.C., he, um, I said, you know, what do you think your legacy will be? Like, how do you want to be remembered? And and he, this is a, a line that he used multiple times in interviews. He said, I want to be remembered as somebody who was a good storyteller and would leave you with a smile on your face and a tear in your eye. And so I don't really think he ever got caught up in the in the accolades, you know, the Leacock medal or the Order of Canada mm-hmm. or any of those things. He he really uh he really was was happy that he was able to be remembered and knew he was going to be remembered as a, a as a good storyteller.
0: How will you remember Mr. Kinsella? Uh,
1: you know, it, it's funny um because I knew him I, I People will say, you know, well, you know, what was it like to be friends with him? And I don't know that we were ever friends. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a um, it was a very professional relationship. Like I said, he never said no to a uh, to an interview question or or uh, to a request for information about something. Um, But I will remember him when when I went up to his house. I guess it would have been the summer of 2013. Um, I had stayed, I got in late, and so I'd stayed at the hotel down in Hope, and he was living up the river in Yale, and uh, he came down and picked me up, and I remember we went to a Tim Hortons and got breakfast, and we pulled off into the parking lot and just had breakfast, and I'm watching this guy tear off pieces of his breakfast sandwich and feed this bird. And I thought, it's just such a weird sort of surreal, you know, I, I don't know what I expected, but seeing this just a really, uh, you know, this, this older guy, you know, who's in his late 70s at this point, um, just having this really nice everyday moment uh, was was fun. And then when we went up to his house, doing the interviews, you know, he was a very competitive Scrabble player Mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. and Canada. And as I was doing the interviews, he's sitting there playing multiple Scrabble games on his iPad. And, um, you know, so I'll remember him first as a a really great writer. I mean, I think that that as far as uh, not just Canadian writers, but writers in general, I think Bill Kinsella is, is somebody who um, is sometimes overlooked, um, you know, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, but on a personal level, I'll just remember those, you know, sitting around his kitchen table, going to Tim Horton's and just having these kind of everyday, uh, types of, of interactions, which was a really nice memory to have with him.
0: Mm-hmm. Looking back on the journey from a personal standpoint, did you learn anything about yourself while you were writing this book?
1: Uh, yeah, the, I never want to do another biography. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, I did. You know, I, um, I, I told my wife when I came back from meeting him for the first time and he gave me all of these, um, diaries and things and, and, you know, we were exchanging ideas and stuff. Um, there's a line in Shoeless Joe that, uh, that the Burt Lancaster character, Moonlight Graham, um, in Field of Dreams says, and he says, um, Hardly anybody recognizes the most significant moments of their lives while they happen. Mm -hmm. And I realized that me making the decision to go to that movie by myself when I was 16 years old was one of those moments. And as I'm sitting there at Bill Kinsella's kitchen table talking with him, getting ready to write this biography, I realized none of this would have happened had I not done that. And you don't really – Think about that while these seemingly mundane moments are happening. But I tell my students, I said, you know, it's amazing what happens if you just open up your your self to the opportunities, you know. Right? And it may be something as mundane, seemingly mundane as going to the movies, but you never know how that will set into, you know, motion. These mm-hmm. things will happen that 20, 30 years later, you're sitting down to write a biography. Um, and so I'm, I' you know I learned that, that that line and that's one of my favorite lines in in literature um, is that you know nobody recognizes or hardly anybody recognizes the most significant moments of their lives while they happen. and so don't don't overlook the things that don't seem to be a big deal.
0: Speaking of moments and big deals, the Field of Dreams experience, you wrote a little piece for us on our website about your personal experience with that. Yeah. Now with the benefit of hindsight and being able to look back on it a couple of months later, what did it mean to you to be a part of that and to take that all in?
1: You know, as you're saying that I'm thinking back and I'm I'm getting chills again. Just it, it was I've gotten to do a lot of really great things over the years, uh, many of, of which involve sports. Um, but, you know, I've gotten to see, you know, world records fall in track and field. I've gotten, you know, world series games. I've never experienced anything like that field of dreams game. Um, you know, we got, uh, Shannon Kinsella, Bill's oldest daughter. Um, she and her husband, Don came down. Uh, my youngest daughter, Marianne and I flew up. We met there and it was you know, it, just the the electricity there. You could you could feel it as you were turning off the the interstate and going on the the two lane roads, and you get back in these cornfields, and then everybody who watched the game, you know, seeing the the Yankees take the lead, and you thought, well, here we go again. And um and, and we had made a deal, my youngest daughter told me before the game, she said, Daddy, I can't cheer for the Yankees. I just don't like them and, and Shannon Kinsella turned to her and said, You know what? My dad didn't like the Yankees either, so tonight we'll just all be White Sox fans. And so um watching that home run uh, you know, at the at the end, you know, and you know, Tim Anderson hit that pitch and the place just went nuts. Um, it was one of those moments that you could not have scripted any better. And in fact, this was a really, I, I'm glad that this happened for Shannon. Um, there were strangers coming up to her that had found out who she was, and they were coming down saying, Your dad couldn't have written a better story. This is like watching one of your dad's books come to life. And, and that was a really nice moment to, to see her, you know, be able to hear the appreciation that people had for her dad's craft. But I tell you what, um, you know, for all of the faults that, that Rob Manford and Major League Baseball, all of the, the dumb decisions they've made in the past few years, they got that game right. And, and it's going to be a hard one to top, I'll tell you that.
0: What do you think Bill would have thought of that game?
1: Uh, would have loved it. Shannon and I were talking about this. You know, there's been a lot of talk in Iowa about the the people that are wanting to build a variety of, you know, ball fields and dormitories and, you know, have these Tournaments That are going to be played there. And um, Kinsella was all about, look, this is a commercial enterprise. If you can make money off of it, make money off of it. And he never understood why Don Lansing, the guy that owned the farm on which the movie site set, he never understood why Don didn't charge uh, 20 bucks. Right. He said, it's in the book. You know, he said, you know, people will pay $20. And he said, I don't get it. He said, I'd be making money hand over fist. And so Shannon and I were kind of laughing about that, saying, you know, he would have absolutely loved it. He would have loved the publicity that it generated, the book sales that it generated. And the cherry on top would, of course, have been the game itself that with that terrific ending. Um, and so Shannon and I both were 100% in agreement that Bill Kinsella would have been just giddy over the whole experience
0: one of the things that I always took away from that book and from the Field of Dreams movie is the the relationship between father and son. You had the opportunity to experience that game with one of your daughters. What was that like?
1: Yeah, it was terrific. You know, I took, uh, my my own dad died unexpectedly about um, two months after Bill Kinsella died in, in 2016. And um, I took my dad's ball glove with me. And Marianne, my daughter, had her ball glove. And so we went out on the movie site, the field, and just played catch. And, you know, we we were throwing the ball and I'm looking around and there are literally hundreds of people just kind of roaming around. Several dozen were throwing balls. I saw, you know, guys in their 80s, you know, kids that are four or five years old. And everybody was out there just having a good time. And I thought, you know, this is a this is a pretty cool moment to be able to do this with my daughter. And um we we finished playing catch and then we got to walk through the cornfield to where the the stadium was where the game was being played. And you know, I it's hard being a parent of a teenager because, you know, um dads aren't supposed to be cool, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we we embarrass our kids and when we walk through the corn uh Marianne stopped dead in her tracks and looks up and goes, Whoa, dad, this is cool. And I knew, okay, this is, you know, no matter what happens on this trip, this is this is worth it right here. And mm-hmm. so it was a it was a fantastic moment and one that uh that I wouldn't trade for
0: anything. Do you find yourself almost pinching yourself in that situation, almost that moment of I got to soak this in, like you said, sometimes you don't really notice the moments until they're long gone. Do you try to, in those moments, be cognizant of the fact that it is one of those moments?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That was one, that was a night where you knew this is, this is a special moment. This is, um, you know, without sounding, uh, you know, like a cliche, it, it is a once in a lifetime. You know, it's the first major league ball game in Iowa. This is the first time that you know, everything that we saw that night, first base hit, first stolen base, first home run, all of these things are first. And so that was kind of cool. Um, but being able to experience it with, with your kid, it just takes it to the whole next uh, level. And and it was funny because, you know, I'm looking and, you know, behind us we saw Dwyer Brown, who plays John Kinsella, the dad in the movie. And looking across the, you know, a few sections over, Kevin Costner was sitting there. And, you know, it was really cool to see that but I'm watching them and I'm like they're just kicked back watching a game and enjoying themselves the same way that that Marianne and I were and it was it was really neat to be able to see that and experience that um but yeah it was one of those things that a couple of times I just sort of sat back and looked and thought yeah how in the world did I end up here um you know and I don't question it I just I'm I'm along for the ride and I'm so grateful for the opportunity that Bill Kinsella gave me to do that
0: what's next for you
1: Oh, um, well, in the short term, grading a stack of papers uh, on my desk. Uh, but in the long term, I'm working on a on a project, um, a book about baseball in the weeks following nine eleven. And uh, I'm looking at the the teams that were closest to the crash sites on September eleventh. Hmm. And so, obviously, the Mets and Yankees for New York, um, the Pittsburgh Pirates were the closest team to Shanksville, Pennsylvania and then uh the Baltimore Orioles were the closest team to Washington DC at the time near the Pentagon. And so I'm looking at um you know kind of how 9/11 impacted those teams and how baseball kind of helped uh the country um let's say heal but at least be able to get through those those days and weeks that were pretty dark there in the fall of, of 2001. And so I'm I've been researching it. I I had actually started it before Bill reached out to me and then You know, that took several years, and and so I've been going back and doing some of the research. So I I hope to be able to get that one uh, ready in the the next couple of years.
0: Very cool. Well, very much appreciative of the conversation. The final question I have for you is one that we ask all of our guests here on the podcast. What does the game of baseball mean to you?
1: Oh, gosh. Um... It, it's funny, like because it depends on what day you ask me, right? Mm-hmm. Like opening day, I love the optimism. Every team is in first place. Um, now I'm a Pittsburgh Pirates fan, and that's usually the only time that we're in first place. <laughs> um, but but to me, it's it's optimism. You know, if you go 0 for 4 today, you know what? You get to come back and do it again tomorrow. You get a second chance, and so I, I love the 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 optimism and the the opportunity for. Uh, redemption that's built into an entire season. I, I just I love that about the game, and I, and I think that that's some of the stuff that's in the fiction that that Bill wrote too um, is just the the unlimited possibilities that the game provides.
0: Willie, really, really appreciate your time again here on the podcast. Thanks so much for delving into not only the book but also the movie and and the game as well. Really appreciate all your work. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again to Willie Steele for joining us, and as I mentioned to him off air, we want to thank him as well for all of the support he's given us over the years in sharing our stories with his followers. We'd also like to take a moment to thank our two Platinum supporters for their generosity. The Okotoks Dogs have been with us from the very beginning as a sponsor and are always quick to share our stories. Make sure to check them out at dogsbaseball.ca. And Absolute Human Performance recently joined us with our new tiered supporter package. They're up to some great things in the Capital Region, so check them out at absolutehumanperformance.com. Until next time, thanks for all of your support, no matter the platform of Alberta Dugout Stories.